Amen. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14 tonight. Paul is um, winding down his um, letter as the uh, epistle to the Romans. And uh, these last two, next two chapters, um, the last chapter, chapter 16, is mostly greetings and, and things like that. Uh, so, but the next two, the one we'll cover tonight, chapter 14, and then next week, chapter 15, are written specifically to strong believers uh, rather than conclude with some kind of heavy doctrinal thesis or, or points. Paul talks about the behavior in the church, and he places a responsibility on the strong believers for that behavior, for the church being uh, conducted, the church work and the church relationships conducted in a certain way. So we'll start in chapter 14, verse 1. He says, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about this. But most translations um, translate this doubtful disputations as differences of opinion. Thoughts of the mind, in other words. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. In other words, not to try to change his opinions about things. For one believes that he may eat all things. Another who is weak eats herbs or is a vegetarian. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God has received him. Now, the first point I want to make, and, and if you'd like, turn back with me to uh, hold your finger here. We'll be coming back to this. But uh, to really understand what Paul is talking about in, in context of who we are in Christ, turn back with me to Mark chapter 7. The first thing that Paul makes mention of is that there are strong believers in the church and there are weak believers in the church. And his overall point is that the strong believers shouldn't look down on the weak believers. And the examples, he's going to use two examples. One is what, the, what we eat or drink, and the other is uh, uh, observances of holy days. Now, it's interesting because Paul doesn't say um, what a strong believer is. Paul doesn't go into some kind of explanation to begin with prior to these verses of Scripture saying, now here's what a strong believer is and here's what a strong believer does. He just takes for granted that everybody's going to understand or should understand that there are different levels of belief, different levels of faith, different levels of strength of Christianity. And so he says, him that's a strong believer, this is the responsibility that's to you. Now, if you're a weak believer, number one, you don't want to admit that. So in the, this letter is being read in the church. Consider that you haven't read this before and that we're not sitting in this setting, but you're sitting in the, in the Rome, the, one of the Roman churches, when this letter first comes. Where are you going to try to identify? Everybody's going to try to identify as a strong believer. So Paul, by the Holy Ghost, by the wisdom of the Holy Ghost, says this in such a way as to not only get the point across about how the church should operate with one another among themselves, but also, he says it in such a way that it inspires everybody to want to be in the strong believer category. Now, with that in mind, the example, the first example he uses is eating and drinking things. Now, there are two uh, things that the New Testament refers to as far as eating and drinking the controversies of the day. Number one was the law of Moses. Do we keep the law of Moses? If, if so, that means we can't eat shellfish, we can't eat pork, we can't get, eat all the things that were contrary or forbidden to the uh, by the law of moses the other is meats offered to idols he writes to the corinthians extensively about this uh now 
we don't have any reason to think that it was a, a lesser practice in Rome than it was in Corinth or Ephesus or in any of the other places. But, uh, but, but he doesn't make mention of it specifically. He just lumps it into the category about eating and drinking. Now, with that in mind, let's go, go back to what Jesus said. Jesus said in Mark chapter 6, um, well, let's start reading in verse 5. We'll skip down through a lot of this, but I want you to get the context. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders? But eat bread with unwashing hands. Now, folks, Jesus is on the earth doing miracles like nobody has ever done before, things that nobody has ever seen before, things that have never been heard by mankind before. And this is their question. Why don't you wash your hands? Now, you go back and study the law of Moses, you'll find out there is no hand-washing ceremony in the law of Moses. But they rightly identify it as the tradition of the elders. Jesus answered and said unto them, Well, has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things, uh, such like things you do. And then he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. Now, what are traditions? Traditions are reasonings. Traditions are doctrines or, or principles that people have come up with because of what they think about the situation or the, the, whatever the subject is. Now, they may say it's based on the law of Moses, but it's not. They may say this is our way of worshiping God, but if it was a way of worshiping God, God did them a disservice by not telling them this is what you should do. Well, certainly it's not a manner of worshiping God. It's an idea that men came up with to satisfy their own desires and their own ideas. So Jesus said, full well you reject you the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoso curses father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, if a man shall say unto his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. Now, you understand what this, what this works, how the, the tradition works? You could buy off your obligation to honor your father and mother. You could pay a one-time gift, and then you're free from having to honor what the commandment was to keep, uh, uh, to honor your father and mother, take care of them, do whatever would be appropriate. So Jesus goes from washing pans and washing pots and cups to talk about other aspects of the law that they're violating because of their own ideas. Verse 12, and you suffer him no more to do aught or anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition. Now, folks, that is huge. That statement is huge. It's the principle behind whatever, everything else that he's going to say. You can take your own ideas, wrong ideas and wrong opinions, and subvert the commandment of the word of God. That's why it's so important for us to renew our mind to the word. Because wrong thinking will cause you to believe wrong. Believe contrary to what God says in many cases. And the church does it right and left all over the place every day. They have certain ideas about healing. And it violates what the Bible says Jesus did for us in paying the price for our sickness as well as our uh, sins. And their wrong ideas, their wrong opinions on the subject of healing violates not only what the word of God says Jesus did. But robs people of part of the blessing that Jesus sacrificed himself for. I'm not too sure God's happy about that. What do you think? 
If I was Jesus, I wouldn't be happy about it. If I paid a, a severe price, as severe a price as he did for the healing of the physical body and to have the church say that that's not included in the work that I accomplished, that would not make me happy. Making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have delivered, and many such things, do, such like things do you. Now, notice in verse 14, I didn't intend to read the whole thing, but we did. Verse 14, and when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, hearkening unto me, every one of you, and understand. I'm going to read that again. Jesus is being crystal clear. He's saying, I want everybody to understand what I'm about to say. Are you with me? You ready for what he's going to say? Here's what he says. Verse 15, there is nothing. Everybody say nothing. Many other translations say not one thing. There is nothing from without, meaning outside the man's body, that entering into him can defile him. Now, was Jesus just speaking generally? Or did he mean what he said? If he meant what he said, that means there is no food. Now, this is, these people are under the law of Moses. Where they were commanded by the Lord not to eat shellfish, not to eat pork, and so forth. Jesus is saying, while the law of Moses is still in effect, Jesus is saying there is not one thing that can enter in from the outside of a man, not one thing that he eats, not one thing that he drinks, that can defile that man before God. You can well understand how the Pharisees had a problem with Jesus. Because they have a right, through lack of understanding, but still a right, to say, wait a minute, he's teaching us not to observe the law of Moses. Well, he's not. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is the law of Moses is a type of something else, something more important that will be revealed in the church age. But the, the same truth is still true. And that is there is no food that defiles a man before God. Well, then what was the point of, uh, of the, the commandments in the Old Testament of what you could eat and what you couldn't eat? Most of it had to do with health reasons. So he says here clearly, I want you to clearly understand me, hearken unto me every one of you and understand. There is nothing, not one thing from without or outside of a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him those are they which defile the man. The things that defile you before God are the things that come out of you, not the things that go into you. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. That sounds like a familiar saying. Jesus talked about that as having to do with understanding, hearing, understanding, and accepting the truth of the word of God, the kingdom of God, and all of the benefits and the blessings thereof. All of the types and the shadows of the Old Testament that will be fulfilled by his work and have been in our day have been fulfilled. But folks, I want you to understand, Paul knows this. Paul understands what the principle is. And so back to Romans chapter 14, Paul says, now, here's what you strong believers should know. Here's what you strong believers should operate according to. And that is, again, verse 1, him that is weak in the Lord, receive ye. Not to doubtful disputations. One of the hardest things for believers as they start getting some knowledge is not to try to fix everybody else's thinking. One of the greatest examples that uh, existed, I hope it's still not going on too much nowadays, but boy, when I went to Bible school, there were confession monitors. 
people that had a little bit of knowledge that heard a few tape series, man, they were just waiting for somebody to say the wrong thing so they could correct them and show how smart they were. We were learning about the importance of our words, and so we wanted to fix everybody else around. Folks, that's the whole theme of this chapter. Nobody else is your servant to fix. It says there are going to be weaker Christians. Receive them. Don't try to change their thinking. Receive them. But don't, not to try to change their thinking. For one believes that he may eat all things. Well, why would we think that? Because Jesus said nothing that you eat will defile you. Furthermore, when Peter had a problem with that in Acts chapter, uh, what was it? Acts chapter 10, yeah, where he saw the vision where the sheet was let down from the four corners and there, were every, there was every manner of uh, beast in there, clean and unclean. The Lord spoke to Jesus, or the Lord spoke to Peter. The Lord Jesus spoke to Peter and said, rise, Peter, slay and eat. And Peter said, no, 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 no. I might be saved. I might be doing healing miracles, but there is no way I'm going to violate the law of Moses. And Jesus said, that's not working anymore. Don't call common or unclean what I have cleansed. Well, Peter came to understand that that was talking about people. The food that he saw represented in the vision or saw in the vision represented people, Jews and Gentiles. But the same principle is true. There's nothing that you can eat or drink that will defile you. Now, does that mean that we should eat and drink everything? For example, if there's nothing that you eat or drink that will defile you, we've even got a scripture in Mark chapter 16 where it says, if you drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt you. Do you know of any Christian group, cult or otherwise, that's going out drinking poison? Now, why? Why aren't they asserting their rights as Christians to drink poison? Well, I assume they're not that stupid. See, just because something might be, uh, something might be identified as not defiling you doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do or the best thing to do or a healthy thing to do or anything else. Jesus is just simply making the point, the things that defile you before God are not the things that you put in your mouth, but the words that come out of your mouth. That's what affects you. So he says, him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believes that he may eat all things, another who is weak eats herbs. Now, Paul has just nailed some people to the wall. Now, the point is this. He's not saying it's ungodly to be vegetarian or vegan or whatever people want to call themselves. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if somebody's doing it for conscience sake, that's a weakness of faith. See, some people do that because of health reasons. They just feel like it's a healthier lifestyle. Okay. Is that wrong to do? No. Is it a lack of faith on their part? Not unless they're doing it because they think it's ungodly to eat meat. Now, if that's the case, then they fall into that category of being weak in faith. But there's any number of reasons that somebody might choose to do that that, don't, that aren't Bible-based. It may be based in a healthier lifestyle or a desire for a healthier lifestyle or whatever the case might be. There's a lot of places that I'll go that I won't eat certain kinds of meat, but it doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. It has to do with the restaurant I'm in or whatever the case is. You understand what I'm saying? That's the point Paul's making. He said, but if somebody's doing it for conscience sake, that's a weakness of faith. Why? Because nothing you eat or drink can defile you before God. Let not him that eateth 
Despise him that eateth not. In other words, the one that eat meat. The one that eats meat, don't let him look down on or condescend to the person that is living off of vegetables. And let not him that eateth not judge him that eateth. Now there's something that's pretty common. Because a lot of the vegan lifestyle people are looking down on everybody else for not being vegan. Now, again, if it's not a matter of conscience, then that's just, you know, human relationship stuff. But if it's a matter of I'm more godly than you are or more spiritual than you are because I'm eating right or eating a certain way and you're not, then that's what Paul is saying don't get into. Now, apparently that was an issue in Paul's day. Otherwise, why address it? So he said, let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him that eateth not judge him that eateth, for God has received him. Notice what the Bible says. It says that people can have differing opinions on things based on their belief of the Bible, and God sees them as your equal. Doesn't mean two people are equal in strength or knowledge or or beliefs, but God sees them as equal. Who art thou that judges another man's servant? And notice what Paul uses as, the, as the, the reason why we shouldn't look down at one another and instead receive each other without trying to change our opinions. One of the hardest things in a Christian life to do is to have faith before God secretly, hiding it from somebody that's weaker than you for his sake. Now, the reason, uh, and, and to do that until he becomes stronger. Now, the reason that that's not easy is because it takes walking in love, and most Christians aren't willing to do that. Most Christians want to tell you how smart they are and tell you what you don't know about the Word and so forth and impress you with their knowledge, but that never works. Offending somebody because of what they do or trying to correct what they do rarely, rarely, rarely ever works if if it ever has. That's not the way that it's supposed to work. The way that it's supposed to work is love them, and let God work on them. Who art thou that judges another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, she shall be holden up. For God is able to make him stand. This, uh, this word servant really means the household servant or house servant. Now the, the, the picture is this. If you went to somebody's house for a dinner party. And they catered it and maybe uh, ordered a wait staff to, to take care of the people and serve the food and, and do all that kind of thing. If you weren't happy with the service... Would you complain about them? I wouldn't. Even if I wasn't happy with them, and even if I thought that the host wasted their money on whoever these people are, I'm going to let the host deal with their own people. And I'm not going to do anything to try to make the host feel bad for the service on the part of the wait staff when they went out of their way to do something nice for me. That's the same picture it's, it's painting for us with other believers. Don't be complaining about somebody else's servant. God will take care of them. And the way that he takes care of them is we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to answer for our works, whether they were eternal works or earthly works, whether they'll be eternal and last or whether they'll burn up. Everybody has to answer for themselves, and that's the whole point. We all have to stand before God for ourselves, not for you. I don't have to answer for you. Thank God. And you should be especially glad you don't have to answer for me. Amen. Who art thou that judges another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Now he goes into another example. 
One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regards the day, now the day he's talking about is the Sabbath day, specifically. He that regards the day regards it unto the Lord, and he that regards not the day to the Lord does he not regard it. For he that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he that giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth unto himself, and no man dies unto himself. In other words, what he's saying is this. He's saying some people are still in the church, born again, maybe spirit-filled believers even. We would expect that they would be in that day and time. Are still trying to keep the Sabbath day. Now, why is that? Well, maybe it's because they, they are Jews by birth. Maybe it's still a part of the law of Moses that they're holding on to. But Paul says it shouldn't matter to us whether some, pers- some people in the church try to hold on to the Sabbath and other people don't hold on to the Sabbath. Because you that are stronger in the faith should recognize it's not the day. Now, folks, do you realize the difference between church Sunday and the Sabbath day? Do you understand the difference? The Sabbath day commemorates the day that, you, that the Lord rested, that God rested after he'd completed his work. That's not what Sundays are about. Sundays represent the first day of the week, which commemorates the day that Jesus was resurrected. So it commemorates the fact that we've been set free from the law of Moses as well as from every other law. So there is no equal uh, status between the Sabbath, the, Mo- the Jewish Sabbath, and church Sunday. Well, which one's right? Which one matters? There was, a, uh, there was a, an early church father that was uh, uh, brought under accusation. I think it was Justin Martyr that uh, was brought under accusation because he didn't keep the Sabbath. And he asked the question, he said, how can I honor the Sabbath or keep the Sabbath when through faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross has enabled me to enter into rest from sin every day of the week? And that's what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about stronger believers understand that. They understand that there's not just a special day. It's not just a special type of worship. They recognize that they're free in Christ every day of the week, all day, every day. Well, then what makes the Sabbath day special? What makes keeping of the Sabbath special and not doing extra work and not cooking and, and stuff like that? What makes that special? Well, nothing to the one that's strong enough to realize we've been set free by Jesus. That's what Paul says. Yet, he says, realize the people that are keeping the Sabbath, even though it may seem foolish and unnecessary to you, recognize that they're doing that under the Lord. And God honors that because they're doing it under the Lord. Now, folks, what does this come down to? It comes down to one and only one thing, and that is live by your conscience. Not according to somebody's rules. And you can't impose your conscience on somebody else. Now, notice how different this is from the law of Moses. And let's say that there's somebody in the, uh, in the church there at Rome that's hearing these things read, that's keeping the, the Sabbath day or trying to keep some of the other Ten Commandments or the, some of the other aspects of the law. Think about what they're hearing. Paul is saying, live according to your conscience. God will honor it, not according to what you're doing, whether it's the Sabbath day or not, keeping the Sabbath or not keeping the Sabbath, not whether it's eating uh, bacon or not eating bacon, but according to what someone believes about the Lord. The Lord will honor that because they're acting or either partaking or not partaking, keeping the Sabbath or not keeping the Sabbath, 
based on their belief toward God. And God's okay with it either way. Moses sure couldn't say that. There was nothing about the law of Moses that Moses could say, well, you choose. Let your conscience be your guide. Ever. Under any circumstances. Because it was all about behavior. It was all about what you do, not about what you believe. It's about what you do. Folks, you need to realize that Paul is talking about in these 14th and 15th chapters, he's talking extensively about our life in the Spirit and being led by the Holy Ghost. He's the one who told us about being led by the Holy Ghost. The context of being led by the Holy Ghost is walking in love toward one another and having the same care toward one another. He's still talking about the same thing. Verse 8 again, for whether we live, we live under the Lord, and whether we die, we die under the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, now folks, this is, in my opinion, this is the most doctrinal packed statement in all of this 14th chapter. For unto this end, Christ both died and rose and revived. Now, either Paul, by the Holy Ghost, is, is repeating himself or he's dividing things up in a lot of ways that the church is not willing to do. Died means either physical death or spiritual death. You choose. It's got to be one of those. Rose has got to be the resurrection of his body. What about revived? Why did he make mention? Why would the Holy Ghost make mention that he died, rose, and revived? Because it encompasses in these three things, it encompasses not only his physical death, but also his spiritual death and his resurrection from that spiritual death. To this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Can't be Lord of the dead unless you die. We could say he's the Lord of the physical death because he died physically. But is that all that he died? Does that mean he's the, dead, he's the Lord of physically dead bodies? Well, there's no life in them. No, he's the Lord of the spiritually dead too because he paid the price that was due them. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is what I referred to earlier. He says, why should we judge somebody else like they're our own servant? Everybody's going to have to stand before the Lord for themselves. For it is written, he uses an Old Testament example or scripture. As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore. Now he's not saying that we shouldn't judge. He's saying we shouldn't judge each other. Notice what he says we should judge. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather. In other words, judge this. You want to judge something? Judge this. Judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Again, he's talking about living by conscience. Not liberty, but living according to your conscience. In other words, what we ought to be judging in our lives is not are we living free in Christ, but are we living in such a way that we don't cause somebody else a problem that might be weaker than us? Most people aren't willing to judge that, turn that judgment meter on themselves. Seems to me at least. Now, it, it, it works tremendously when you point it outward. I mean, it works instantly. 
when you point that thing away from yourself. But somehow or another, people just can't get that thing turned back around. But that's exactly what Paul says. Paul says we ought to judge our own lives, not according to our own liberty, but whether or not our liberty is causing somebody else a problem. We, uh, many years ago, when we were still meeting in the industrial building, we would have, um, from time to time, we'd go to a, a cafe in, um, um, well, it's Lake Forest now, it's El Toro Road and the freeway. And uh, we'd do this two or three times a year and just kind of have a, everybody go through the, the cafeteria line, get their own stuff, and then we'd kind of take over the, the whole restaurant type thing. Well, you know how it is with cafeterias. They'll have every, all kinds of things. They would have fried shrimp. No, oh, I love shrimp. And so I went through the first time I went through and I got some fried shrimp. Well, I just happened to sit next to an older lady, an older couple, that, man, she had a problem with shellfish. I mean, she was on this Old Testament thing. God told us not to eat it and stuff like that. She chewed my ear off. And I started off trying to explain to her, and she wouldn't hear it. She wouldn't have any part of it. And so every time that we went, I would do one of two things. I would either make sure that I could sit on the other side of the room where she couldn't see what I was eating. Or if I knew there was a chance that she was going to see me, and this was usually the case, I just wouldn't get what I wanted. And the first time I did that, that bugged me so bad. I thought, I can't believe it. Here I am paying for my own food and can't get what I want to get. <laughs> but the more I did it, the more it became a game. And the game was not whether or not I get what I want. The game is I'm doing le- a whole lot less than what I'm free in Christ to do. But she feels a whole lot better. And man, I'm telling you what, when I would sit down anywhere close to her and not have shrimp, she was just sure that she would convinced me. It became a game. And I got blessed so much by that. I can't, uh, it's hard for me to explain. But it brought such a blessing to me to know that I made her feel good about what she believed. And what is it different? What difference does it make to me? I'll go buy shrimp somewhere else, you know. I couldn't afford it back then, but a little different now. Folks, that's the way it ought to be. We ought to be looking out for what the other person needs from us, not what we want to do. But we live in a day where everybody's so into themselves. They're so about what they're, what's legal and, and, and okay for them to do that they don't give any thought to the other person. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore. But judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Now notice verse 14. Verse 14 is really important. Paul said, I know and am persuaded. Paul didn't say, I I know because I'm persuaded. He said, I know and I'm persuaded. I want you to realize something about the conscience. Paul's going to tell you something about being led by the Holy Ghost here. And most people miss it entirely. At least in my opinion, they do. First of all, knowledge is necessary. But God can't just command your conscience to be a certain way. Any more than we can demand of other people that their consciences fit with ours. It comes like this. It comes from knowledge. And then knowledge meditated on becomes persuasion. Or persuadedness may be a better way to say it. Paul said, I know and I'm persuaded. In other words, he's going to tell us about his conscience. He says, here's what I know. Here's what I've been persuaded of. Notice where that persuasion comes from. It comes from knowledge simmered by the Holy Ghost. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus 
that there is nothing unclean of itself. Well, how is he persuaded of that? Now, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a tribe of, of the tribe of Benjamin. He kept the law. He was a law keeper from his birth, or earliest age at least. But now he's doing things and living ways that are totally contrary to what he was taught and what, he was, in, what was ingrained in him because it was the commandment of God. Now, get this, please, please, folks. I think this is a point that we often miss, and that is, To set aside the law of Moses is to set aside the Old Testament commandments of God that were given to mankind in tablets of stone. Do you realize the the persuadedness that would be necessary to set aside the Old Testament? And what do you got to go on? Primarily, it's one guy out there teaching this is what you need to do. Because most everybody else is saying, well, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not sure about that. When it came to the council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, Paul stood up. And one of the ways that he was able to persuade the others is he said, look at the miracles and look at the signs and look at the results that I'm getting by preaching this gospel of faith in Jesus, only not faith plus keeping the law. And James and some of the other apostles in Jerusalem had the good sense And the conviction of the Holy Ghost to to say, well, you couldn't get those kind of results from God. Those results are obviously from God. You can't get those results unless you're preaching the truth because God confirms his word with signs following. But in most of these places, the places that Paul writes the letters, he's the lone voice. And that was, in my opinion, is one of the reasons why the devil stirred up such trouble against him. If If the devil could have shut Paul up, he could have taken away the major voice for faith in jesus alone i don't think we take i think we take for granted and i don't think we understand just how i hate i don't i don't want to use the word fragile because it wasn't fragile but how god was willing to use such a little bit to turn the course of the world I mean, it'd be one thing if Jesus appeared to a thousand people at once and made them all preachers and and schooled them in Paul's revelation, had a seminar and said, okay, now I want everybody to understand, take notes. I want everybody to understand this is the doctrine that I want the church to be established on. We couldn't argue with that. That's not what he did. He gave it to one guy. He said, now go wherever nobody else has been. The rewards that Paul has in heaven must be huge. Because he bucked all the odds in everybody's opinion. And here this guy is saying, don't try to fix everybody's thinking. I wonder how he learned that. By trying to fix everybody's opinions and thinking. He came to realize only God can do that. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. In other words, it's our conscience. Now, wh- let me stop here for a minute. Let's talk about it for just a second. I know I'm out of time, but we'll take a few more minutes. It won't take us long to finish this chapter. What would make somebody weak in the faith? What would cause somebody to be weak in the faith? There are several reasons that somebody could be weak in the faith. One might be traditional or legal teaching that they've been under. There may be people in the, in the, the church at Rome 
that are being taught marginal doctrine, if, if you understand what I mean by that term. Not the fullness of the revelation of Paul, but maybe they're mixing the law of Moses in with faith in Jesus too. So there might be some in the church that are that way because they're being taught to be that way. There might be others that are that way because they're still under the condemnation of past sins of their former unsaved lives. There might be others that are under of that persuasion because they just haven't come to the realization that Jesus through his death severed our ties with the old man. There's any number of reasons why people could be weak in the faith, but God doesn't turn them away. He doesn't say, now, uh, those that are weak in the faith, receive them unless. He says, receive them. If they believe in Jesus, that's enough for God. Certainly he wants us to grow, but that's his job, not ours. Verse 15, but if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. In other words, he's saying, if you're doing something that causes somebody else to stumble, you're not walking in love. Well, then we can determine from this that the definition of walking in love is looking out for the other guy, not looking out for ourselves, not even exercising your freedom in the Lord in every case. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I am free in Jesus, and I have my rights. Yes, you do. That's not always the love of God that insists on its own rights. As a matter of fact, that's one of the, the characteristics of the Amplified Bible where it talks about what love is. It says love doesn't insist on its own rights or its own way, for it's not self-seeking. Well, that would change the church. We'd stop being self-seeking. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Now that's an interesting word, that word destroy. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. What is he saying? He's saying just as all of us will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ for what we choose to do, eat or not eat. Keep the Sabbath, not keep the Sabbath or, or whatever, the other, whatever the case might be in, in every area of life. He said, you'll have to answer for the Lord if you cause somebody to stumble and cause them to turn away. Because you tried to force feed them or shove something down their throats that they weren't able to handle. Over and over again, Jesus said, I've got a lot of things to say to you, but you can't handle it. Most of us, and I, I've been guilty of this in the past too. Most of us don't even think about what somebody can take. We just think about what we know. And if we know something, bless God, let's get it out there. Jesus didn't operate that way. I mean, maybe we should turn it around. I wonder if there was ever an occasion where Jesus said, I can tell these guys everything I know. I doubt it. I would imagine his lifestyle, his life experience, especially with the disciples, was bless their darling hearts. Well, what can I get across to him today? Give them a little symbol full of the knowledge. Man, I wish I could give them a whole drink. But maybe someday. God doesn't seem to be near in the hurry that we are. Maybe it's that eternity thing. But we usually try to force feed people and try to get more done than they can handle. And in a lot of cases, we drown them. More plants die from overwatering than underwatering, folks. 
But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably, destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. In other words, you can do the right thing as far as your freedom in Christ and have it marked against you because of the way you exercise those rights in front of others. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not about what you can or can't drink. And folks realize that's the argument, especially among the young people in the church. Well, Jesus drank. There, there are examples in the Bible where other people drank. If they could drink, I should be able to drink too. Well, the question is, is not what can we do. The question is what should we do. The question is what is, uh, are we free to do. The question should be what impact will it have on other people. That's what Paul's saying is the standard that the Holy Ghost uses for us. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Well, then what is it, Paul? It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. There's two ways you can look at this verse of Scripture. Three things, three important things that he identifies that the whole kingdom of God can be summarized in. One is righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is is that right standing before God that we receive by faith. Faith in the finished work of Jesus. What are peace and joy? Peace and joy are characteristics, according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. Peace and joy are characteristics of love. So one way you can look at this is the whole kingdom of God comes down to two things, faith and love. But another way you can look at this is notice he said righteousness, not righteousness in Christ Jesus, but righteousness in the Holy Ghost. Peace and and joy in the Holy Ghost talking about our walk he's talking about walking in the spirit the whole kingdom of god is about maintaining our right standing you can't do that if you're destroying somebody with your liberty but maintaining our righteousness our right standing before god by putting other people first following after peace the things that provide for peace and joy i don't know how joyful we're ever going to be if we find out or see that we're causing somebody else to stumble But if we're living in such a way that nobody could possibly stumble, that's where joy is. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Now that's a whole lot different than do's and don'ts, isn't it? It's talking about walking in the Spirit. It's talking about being led by the Holy Ghost. It's talking about living a good, clean life according to your conscience. But it's not talking about rules. See, the rules may be different in one situation. than or, or, Well, rules is a bad word to use. Your choice of behavior might be different in one situation than it might be in another situation based on who you're around. Well, isn't that being hypocritical? No, it's walking in love. If I'm around somebody that understands their freedom in Christ at the same level that I do, then we can operate accordingly and not worry about causing somebody to stumble. But if I'm around in a situation where there might be somebody that could stumble, if I live in such a way that it causes them to be offended, then I've done wrong. He that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow. This word follow is literally the word pursue. It's the word that's translated persecute in many situations. Follow after the things which make for peace. And the things where, whereby one may edify another. In other words, persecute peace. 
go after it in such a, such a strong way. Put the things of God first in your life. Put your own rights on the back burner and the welfare of other people in such a way that it makes for peace. Make that your pursuit in life. That's what he's saying. That's what these words mean. And the things whereby one may edify another. For meat destroys not the work of God. I'm sorry, I read that in the wrong way. For meat destroy not the work of God. In other words, the work of God is way more important than what you want to eat or what you want to drink. All things indeed are pure, but it's evil for that man who eats with offense. Now he's going to show us the other side of the conscience. He's saying if somebody goes beyond their conscience because they see something or hear something that they're not persuaded of in, their, in themselves, then they'll be held liable for that. Now they're getting over into sin. Not because it's unlawful for them, but because they violated their conscience to do it. It's not the behavior, folks. It's the, it's the conscience. It's the leading of the conscience. That's why the development of the human spirit is so important. Because your conscience is the voice of your spirit. So let's read that again. For meat, or any type of food, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat any flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Now, why don't the people that talk about how, what a freedom they have to drink because Jesus drank, why don't anybody point out this scripture? Paul didn't say it's unlawful. In fact, he just said all things are pure. Well, if all things are pure, that means drinking would be pure too if your conscience is persuaded. But if your conscience is not persuaded and you're doing it because your flesh wants to do it, that's what the Bible says is eating or drinking with offense, and that's evil. A lot of the people that are pushing for their own rights are not persuaded that it's, thought, that it's pure or clean. And they're doing themselves a great disservice. Because they're violating their own conscience to do the things that their flesh wants to do. And that's what they'll have to answer for. That's a work that will burn up. And they'll be held accountable for it. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Now, before I finish this up, let me, uh, let me point something out. The picture of the strong versus the strong when the helping and receiving the weak is kind of like this. What would we think about a father who walks with his little son, holding his hand, going down the street or in the park or whatever, wherever they are? What would we think about a father that ridiculed or criticized his son for how slow he was? Or made fun of him for what short strides he took? We wouldn't think that was okay in any sense would we but instead we would take joy and pleasure in watching a father walk with his little son and going at his son's pace no matter how many bugs he stopped to pick up or dirt clods he picked up to throw or anything like that that's what we would recognize as the way that a father should operate that's the picture of the stronger helping the weak along the way not trying to hurry him up not criticizing or ridiculing them for how slow they're going but going at their pace. That's what Paul's trying to get across by the Holy Ghost. Then he concludes with this. He says, Hast thou faith? Have it to yourself before God. In other words, he's saying, don't try to push somebody else into believing what you believe. Don't try to push somebody else into into what your conscience is persuaded of if theirs is not. Hast thou faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he that condemns not himself in the things which he allows. Now, the picture that Paul's painting here 
is that the happy man is the one that knows what he's doing is not only lawful for himself, in other words, he's not violating his own conscience, nor does it cause his brother to stumble. That's where real happiness in life comes. Not that you get to do what your flesh wants to do because you claim some freedom in Christ. Happy is the man that condemns not himself in the thing which he allows, and he that doubteth is damned if he eats, because he eateth not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now this is talking about violating the conscience. He's saying anything you push yourself to do that you're not persuaded within your own heart through the knowledge of God's word is right, that's held to sin to your account. So you got two people doing the same thing. One could be lawful. The other is going to be held on account of sin. It's not the behavior, folks. It's following our spirits. It's yielding to our conscience. In Acts chapter 23, verse 1, Paul stood before the council at Jerusalem, the Pharisees, same ones that crucified Jesus, different people holding the office, but still the same group. And he said, men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before, before God and man until this day. And the high priest commanded the people standing by to, to smack Paul, hit him across the face. Paul didn't know who he was, and so he, he spoke against him, reviled him. And then everybody got on to Paul for speaking against the high priest. And Paul said, well, I didn't know that's who it was. I know I'm not supposed to do that, so I'll take it back. But what I want you to see is very simply this. The idea under Judaism that anybody could follow their conscience and live right before God in doing so made somebody worthy of being beaten just for claiming it. Yet that's the standard for our lives. That's how free from the law we are. Free not to do anything and everything our little beady eyes set themselves on. We're free to follow our conscience. That which we know of the Lord and never persuaded. What you do matters more in how it affects other people than it does for the benefit that it brings you. That's what Paul is saying about the stronger Christians. Now you can claim to be weak. You can be free from the responsibility of all this stuff and just claim to be weak. Certainly nobody wants to do that. But that means we have a responsibility to other people. You know what that's going to mean first and foremost? It seems to me you judge it for yourself. But it seems to me first and foremost it means we're going to have to get to know other people and find out where they are. I wonder how many of us get to know each other well enough to even know where somebody's at to know if what we're doing is offending them. I wonder if that has anything to do with receiving the ones that are weak. I believe it does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to know the truth. Jesus said that we would know the truth if we continued in the word, and that truth would set us free. But, Lord, we don't want to just be free for ourselves, free to serve our flesh. We want to be free to help others and be an encouragement to them. Lord, if there's anything that we're doing that's causing any other person to stumble, bring it to our attention by the Holy Ghost. Lord, we thank you for the freedom to be persuaded of the truth and live according to our spirits and operate according to the, the voice of our spirit, which is the conscience. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.